Good to see all of you again. Thank you so much. It is great to be back here. I have missed you all and love you all, and it's so good to see you. And, uh, man, what a great time we've had the last couple of months. It, it's been awesome, and I'm so thankful for the opportunity. By the way, are you ready for the most awkward sermon series you've ever had in your life? If that didn't give you a clue, we're going to go there today and over the next several weeks. But uh, first of all, the last two months, if you're new here, my name is Adam, and I've been on sabbatical for the last couple of months, and it was really incredible. Just to get out, if you followed us on social at all, you know that we made it out to hiking in Washington State, three different national parks there. We made it down to Branson for the first time since we've moved here six years ago, and uh, we also made it out to Colorado a couple weeks ago, and that was Fantastic! Just to be out in God's creation. You know, Stephen mentioned it earlier, seeing everything that he made, it just refreshes your soul. And this whole time for me has been a great uh, personal reset, a, a family reset, a pastoral reset, which was really, really helpful. And I so appreciate it. It was really, really good. There is a part of me that didn't want the sabbatical to end, and there's another part that was itching to get back here. And, and uh, so it, feel, it feels weird. The first couple weeks of the sabbatical felt so weird to not check email and not check messages. Uh, but eventually, you know, around week three, I kind of got used to that. And it was, it was pretty nice, actually, for a while. But I'm excited to be back now. I do want to thank some people who made this possible. And I'm not going to give a, I've got a lot to cover today, so I'm not going to give like a whole sabbatical report or anything today. I'm going to do a five questions podcast about that and cover some of those things. So you can go to our website and, and uh, click on my thing on there and you can uh, get subscribed to the updates that I send and you'll get that. But I do want to thank some people. John and Kevin, our executive pastors here, did a fantastic job leading the staff while I was gone, kept things, everything right on going, didn't miss a beat. We even had some new staff come on board while I was gone. I haven't even actually officially met them yet, but they're awesome. And uh, we've, we've got this great pastoral search team that's led by Bill Peskors, who you just saw. They've been interviewing a lot of candidates, doing a wonderful job. I'm super excited about Kyle. Got to spend a lot of time with him and be involved in the search process even during the sabbatical. So that was really, really good. I'm thankful to our whole staff team, our elder board, for all that they do at the church. The sabbatical is just a great reminder that this is not about a person. This doesn't revolve around me. Like the church is the body of Christ all coming together as a team. And we do everything with team in mind around here, but you really see that shine when somebody takes an extended leave and everybody pulls together to make it all work. So I'm, I'm so thankful to, to our staff. I'm thankful for all of our speakers that spoke during the Verse That Changed Everything series. I've heard so much good feedback about that. It makes me wonder if I should take a sabbatical more often. I don't know. Um, but I'm also thankful to all of you. I'm thankful to our church for making this a possibility, for being supportive of the idea that pastors every now and then need an extended break. It's interesting. John and I were talking just a minute ago about how you really don't actually feel like you're taking any time off as a pastor until about week three of time off. And uh, so this is the first sabbatical I've ever had. It was Hugely rewarding and refreshing, and I'm, I'm so thankful that our church has that. It's something, by the way, that within the last year, we've extended to the rest of our staff as well. So there's a sabbatical benefit not only for pastors now, but also for other staff. And we've had other non-pastoral staff take sabbaticals this year. We think it's a really healthy thing for them and, and really rewarding. So thank you for all of that. Now, I want to get into our topic for today, but before I do... I want us to just pause and pray together because there's a situation going on in the world right now um, that is devastating a lot of lives and, and a lot of families that just happened this week. Maybe you heard about it. It was a 6.8 magnitude earthquake in Marrakesh, Morocco. And we actually have missionaries from our church over there right now helping in that situation. And so I just want us to pause for a minute. They sent us a quick little update. Let us know that they're involved and, and they're okay and what, what they're into um, but uh, I'm not going to mention any names or anything. But I just want us to pause and pray for them and for the people of Morocco. It's, it's tragedies like this that God often uses to bring people to him because they're more open to hearing a message uh, from a God that offers hope. And so I just want us to pause and bow our heads right now and pray for them. Would you do that with me? 
Jesus, we know that you love and care about the people of Morocco and that there are a lot of people who do not know you as Savior, who worship false gods or, or don't necessarily worship a God at all, uh, but they, they have a creator and it's you. We know that you love them and you care for them. And so we pray that you would use the tragedy right now that's going on there as even today the death toll has risen above 2,000 and there are many more unaccounted for. Emergency crews aren't able to get through because the roads have been blocked by all the rubble and it's just a tragic situation, God. Um, we pray that you would show up in a big way in the midst of this through our missionaries that are there and through the other believers that are there that they would show the love of Christ in a powerful and attractive way that would reveal to people their need for a savior, that ultimately your kingdom would grow um, because of this difficult time, that we would see beauty from the ashes, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for allowing us to do that. It's important that we remember this is a, this is a global thing. There are followers of Jesus all over the world and to be praying for them and supporting them, lifting them up before our heavenly father. Well, we are about to launch into a series called Created to Connect, God's Design for Intimacy and Gender. And it is going to be a most unusual series. You are going to hear language and words in this series that you have never heard in a church before. And you're going to hear it a lot. And it's gonna be awkward and it's gonna be weird. And I'm here for it. I hope you are too. It's gonna be so fun. Um, we're gonna touch on subjects that are touchy. We're gonna dive into issues that cause controversy and disagreement. And today is all about setting the stage for that. So we're not gonna get too controversial today because I just wanna build a foundation that we're gonna continue calling back to throughout this series over and over again. Now, normally when we launch a new series, I like to start off, or even a new message for that matter, just every message I give, I try to launch in with some illustration that shows why it's important to talk about the thing we're gonna talk about today. Why should it matter? But as I was thinking about this topic, I thought, well, surely everyone understands the importance of these issues, sex and gender. And, and uh, judging by all of the communication that I've received from people in our church leading up to this series, I would have thought, wow, people are pumped for this. And you've sent me so many books and podcasts and articles and resources. I have not gotten through it all. Um, and I, I appreciate it. I, I love it. And so many comments about how you're excited and ready for this and all that. But then I did hear some other opinions too. Opinions like, maybe this isn't something the church should be talking about. Um, maybe what people do in the privacy of their bedroom is none of our business. And maybe there are more important things like, yeah, this is, this is a thing, but there are more important things we should be talking about besides sex and gender and issues like this. And so I realized, wow, we really need an introductory message that just makes the case for why we should even be talking about this at all. And I don't know which group you're in. If you're in the group that's excited for this and ready for this series and, and ready to have me affirm everything that you've been saying for a long time now, I just wanna warn you that this series is not gonna be as good as your favorite book or podcast on this subject. It's not gonna be as deep because those books and those podcasts are created with a certain audience in mind and the type of person that will click on that podcast or the type of person that will read that book and buy that book is already narrowing down the selection quite a bit. And here, as the weekend gathering of a church of people with a lot more people watching online right now, welcome to all of you. Um, it's, a, it's a broad array of people who didn't necessarily come here with the intention of diving deep into some of the complexities and nuances of these topics. So I have to approach it with that in mind. And we're gonna try to bring some, some care and consideration as we approach these topics. It's not going to go into the level of detail that some of you may want us to have, and I just want you to know that right off the bat. If you're the type of person who are thinking, I don't even think we should be talking about this, just pick a book of the Bible and walk through it and that's it. And why would we even dive into a topic as controversial and difficult as this? I hope that maybe by the end of today, you'll at least understand why we've decided to, to go in this direction. Sometimes we do uh, book of the Bible studies and those are wonderful, I love those. I, I prefer to do that most of the time. But every now and then, it's really good to take a topic and say, what does the whole counsel of God's word across all the 66 books have to say about this particular issue and do a deep dive into that topic? So we like to do both here. And if you are the type of person who just showed up for the first time today and had no idea this is what we're gonna be talking about, I'm sorry. <laughs> but you're here now. You might as well not leave. At least, 
at least stay for the first message, and then hopefully you'll come back for the others. One of the things I don't want to cause in this series is division. And I want you to know that it's normal for people to have disagreement in the church. That's, that's not a bad thing, actually. Read Romans 14. Read 1 Corinthians 10. Paul's goal for the church was not to eliminate disagreement. His goal was for there to be unity even when there is disagreement. And so there will be issues that I, that I talk about and that we touch on here. Or if you're in a group that's going to go through our discussion guide along with us over the next several weeks. There will be conversations that reveal disagreements among us and bring to the surface those disagreements that in some cases can get kind of heated. Where we, we really do not align with each other. The goal is not at the end of the day for all of us to agree on every aspect of everything we talk about or even for you to agree with me on everything that I talk about. I'm going to share what I believe to be true from God's word. But I'm a human. I'm, I'm a human messenger. I'm a flawed uh, deliverer. And so there may be, may be things where you say, oh, I, I disagree with that. And I want to challenge all of us to just be gracious with each other in that process. We are all works in progress. God is going to, through his Holy Spirit, guide us into the truth, but he doesn't say his timeline for that to happen. So eventually, someday in the future, maybe in eternity, we're all going to agree on all the nuances and all of the details. That's probably not going to happen in the next couple of months. So we have to be gracious with each other and understand that while our goal is not to cause division, that doesn't mean we can't have disagreement about some of these issues. That's okay. Let's talk about them uh, with, with, a, with a carefulness and a, a graciousness and with love because we unite around the gospel of Jesus even if there are certain aspects of especially the implications and the application of how you will live and what you will say and what you will affirm and what you will choose to do that get complicated and sticky and messy and sometimes it's not like there's a clear right or wrong answer with how we do certain things. Sometimes there's an element of personal conviction involved and if you need to know more about that, you know, if you've been here very long, where you can go to learn more about that. It's the Undivided series on our website. Very important for us to understand as we get into this. So let me launch with this question then, and that's what a lot of our, our opening is gonna be about here today. Why would we even talk about this topic? Um, aren't there more important things that we should dive into? And I can think of two main reasons that I wanna offer to you for why we are launching into this series. And the first one is the culture says that what you believe and do and say about sex and gender are very important. The culture has made this an extremely important issue. Not just what you do, but what you endorse, what you improve of, what, what, you, what you approve of, what you affirm about sex and gender are very important to our culture. And you don't have to look very far to see that. In fact, the culture has increasingly said that what you believe and endorse when it comes to sexual desires and gender identity are some of the most important things about you to the point where you almost need to lead with that in certain instances. You've probably seen people when they get on TV and they introduce themselves and tell you what their preferred pronouns are or in some cases and some businesses require you to put your preferred pronouns in your email signature. In fact, I just read an article this morning that uh, there's a video game that just came out. It's a really popular game, I guess. And uh, they have this thing where you're supposed to put your preferred pronouns in the game. So some um, I, hackers or mod developers have developed things that you can install that will remove those for you from the game if you don't want to show your pronouns in the game. And now the developers are going back and disabling these hacks so that you have to show your pronouns in the game. All that to say, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying, obviously, our culture has made this a big issue. Issues of gender, issues of sex, your sexual desires, who you prefer. You're going to hear the word sex a lot more today, so just get used to it. Your sexual desires are a matter for you to be proud of. It's not supposed to stay in your bedroom. You're supposed to have a flag. You're supposed to march in a parade. You're supposed to put it all over the place and make it clear. You're to be proud of your sexual desires. It's a part of your identity. It's a part of your personal identity and your group identity. And then group identities band together to lobby and raise awareness for more of this. And so the culture has made sexual desire and gender identity into one of the most important issues of our time. That's one reason why this is so important. To the point where, in some cases, expressing a different opinion can result in extreme harassment, losing your business, just sharing a different, just having a different view on certain things and communicating it has resulted in people being arrested in certain countries and harassed by the authorities and facing legal action. 
um, not even because they did anything against someone who held a different view, just because they expressed an opinion that was different than the prevailing cultural wisdom when it comes to sexuality and gender. And again, I'm not saying whether that's good or bad. I'm just saying, obviously, our culture thinks this is a big deal. And so that's one of the reasons why I think we should talk about this. Our culture does not want these issues to stay in the bedroom. They want them out in the open. They want people to talk about them, representing them. Our culture no longer cries for tolerance on these issues. They cry for endorsement and affirmation. It's no longer just leave us alone and let, our do our, let us do our thing. You know, the old liberal mantra was live and let live. That was, that was a, a common thing of the past, but the new cultural mandate is endorse my views on this or face the consequences. And so this is an important issue to our culture. Now, that's an important reason to talk about it alone, but I have an even more important reason to talk about it, which is that the Bible says what you believe and say about sexuality and gender are very important. Now, I'm mostly going to be talking about issues of sexuality today. In fact, the whole series is mostly going to be about sexuality. There will be some things about gender later on in the series, but most of this today and, and throughout the series will be about sexuality. I want to show you 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, you say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us up from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her. For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a price, so you must honor God with your body. I think um, a lot of people are surprised when they find out how much about sex and sexuality there is in the Bible. And, and there are a few points I want to make from this. Number one is that sex matters to God. Sex matters to God. Paul says God cares about our bodies. He cares about how we use them to form intimacy with each other. Our sexual activity is not just about us. It's also about the God who made us. And that may seem strange. And that may make us a little squeamish and a little weird. I mean, honestly, this whole series is going to make us a little squeamish. But God says in his word that he cares about our sexual activity. It matters to God. We often see sex as a man-centered activity. It's for pleasure, it's for procreation. But is that a biblical view? We'll dive into that a little bit today and a lot more in the rest of the series. Number two, sex binds us in ways that are spiritual. It binds us in ways that go beyond the physical. If you're a Christian in particular, if you've trusted in Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, the Bible says that you are a part of Christ's body. You're a part of Christ's body. You are his representation on this earth, and you are a part of Christ's body. And so when you engage in sexual sin, you are bringing Christ's body into that. That's the argument Paul is making. In fact, he says, when you, when you have sex outside of marriage or have sex with a prostitute in this case, you are becoming one with that person. But if you're also one with Christ, you're bringing Christ into that relationship. Think about that. Think about the weight of that. When you involve yourself in some kind of sexual sin, you are dragging Christ's body, part of it, because that's what you are, into that sexual immorality. Then there's the temple Paul mentions. The temple, the structure under the old Mosaic system, was a place of great reverence and honor because it's where you meant, went to meet with God and there was the outer courtyard and there are certain protocols and propriety and reverence and awe that should be there in the courtyard and then the inner courtyard and then there's the Holy of Holies and, and there's so much reverence for this place and Paul says, you know all the respect you had for the temple? That's your body now. 
Your body is the temple where God lives in you because he's put his Holy Spirit inside of you. Don't you want to honor that temple? It has a lot of implications, but here he is specifically talking about sex. You should honor your temple. You should honor Christ's body. And sex outside of God's design for it doesn't do that. Then number three, sex outside of marriage or sexual immorality does more to harm you than you probably realize or than many people realize. Here are the words of the Apostle Paul in verse 18. He says, no other sin affects you the way sexual sin does. Sexual sin is against your own body. It's a sin against your own body. In other words, there are, there are consequences that go beyond what you realize. Now, so far, we've seen what you do when it comes to sex is important. And the activity that you have, you, you need to refrain from sexual immorality, Paul says. But now let's take this in a different direction. What if it's just, well, that's what I need to do in my life, but what other people do, that's none of my business. I don't need to say anything. Why should I even care what other people do? And in fact, I might even endorse their lifestyle, but that's not for me. Like, I'm a, I'm a Christian, so that's, that's for them, but that's not for me. What, what, what does it have to do with what I say about it and what I affirm? I want to take you to a few other verses, and Isaiah chapter 5 is one of them. Isaiah 5.20 says, What sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil? Not just those that do, those that say that evil is good and good is evil. That dark is light and light is dark. That bitter is sweet and bitter and sweet is bitter. Proverbs 17.15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. You see, it's possible for us to say, well, I'm not going to engage in sexual immorality, but I have no problem with people that choose to do so. But God says, you justify the wicked. That's an abomination too. It's not just about what you do. It's also about what you say. It's also about what you affirm or endorse. Luke 16.15, Jesus is speaking and he says, you like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. And get this, what this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. So the Bible teaches what you believe and even what you say about a lot of different things. But in, in our case, we're talking specifically about sexuality and gender. The Bible says, if you justify evil things, that's an abomination to the Lord. It's not just what you do, it's what you say that matters to God. And this is why this is important to us. It's why we need to talk about this. And I'm relating most of this here to sexuality. We'll talk about gender later in a series. But I want to pause here to keep us from jumping too quickly to application. Because right now, I am sure that you have an idea of where you think I'm going in this series. Every one of you has some kind of idea about what I mean when I say evil. What I mean when I say wicked. What I mean when I say what the world honors, but what do we mean by that? I haven't said what's evil and what's not evil. What practices are evil and not evil or wicked or not wicked? That's what we need to spend some time looking at. What does the Bible say about specific things? Maybe there are some things we think are evil that aren't evil. Maybe there's some things we think are okay that are actually wicked and detestable. We have to dive into God's word to learn those things. We all bring different experiences to this conversation different understandings, different study that we've done, different past hurts, different trauma that affects the way we approach issues of sexuality and gender hugely. has a massive impact on those things. And as a result, sometimes we end up making assumptions about what the other person is saying because we don't understand what they really mean by what they're saying. You may assume what is meant by evil or what is meant by sexual immorality or what is meant by wickedness, but until we have the conversation, we don't actually know if we're speaking the same language or on the same page. And that's why we're not just giving one Sunday to this. We're giving many Sundays to this, to try to talk through it in, in some thoroughness and detail to hopefully get on the same page with each other. Maybe we're not all gonna agree at the end of it, but I hope we all understand a little bit better and understand what God's word says. And as you are having conversations, hopefully in a group with people and using our discussion guide, which is at efree.org slash discussion, I want you to remember to be careful what you read into other people's assumptions or other people's language and first seek to understand. There's a psychologist by the name of Kimberly Key who tells a story about her parents. I don't know her parents' names, so I'm gonna call them John and Mary. John moved in next to Mary as a teenager and he was immediately attracted to her. But it took him a little while to work up the courage to ask her out on a date. When he finally did, he did the safe thing, and he asked her out on a double date. 
Good move, John. So Mary's all excited. She likes John too. And she goes out with her best friend shopping, takes all of her money with her and finds the nicest outfit she has ever owned. This is the nicest. She has never had anything like it. She spends all her money on it because she's so excited for this first date with John. John's a bit of a planner. He comes over earlier in the day to Mary's house just to make sure they've got all the details straight. When are we gonna meet up? Where are we gonna go? What are we gonna do? He just wants to have all those things checked out. You guys like John, you know who you are. You like to have things planned out. So John shows up, Mary opens the door. She's got her new outfit on, she's beaming. She's so excited. She's so proud of what she just spent all of her time and money getting so she can look good for the date that night. And they're talking through the details. And then John asks the fateful question, what are you going to wear? Those of you who laugh have high EQ. Those of you who still don't know why that's a problem. To Mary, that question sounded like the most insulting, degrading thing she had ever heard. What are you talking about? Doesn't this look amazing? From John's perspective, the question was purely a matter of logistics, had nothing to do with Mary. It was because John wanted to make sure he dressed at the appropriate level, right? And I understand that. Are you going to dress more nicely, more casually? Like, I just want to fit here. John meant no harm by it, but Mary took great harm from it because they didn't understand. The same words were used, the same language. They both understood the words, but they didn't understand what was behind it. And you know what happened? Mary lied to John. She said, I don't know what I'm going to be wearing. And she waited an hour, called him, and said, the date's off. Now they got back together. They got married. They had two kids. It's all okay, all right? I just want to resolve that for you, because otherwise that tension is going to live over you for the rest of the message. I know how this works. I have left stories hanging before, and afterward, people are lined up to say, what happened? Everything's okay. Mary and John are okay. True story. But because they didn't understand the context and the, the meaning behind what the other person was saying, they, they really messed up their relationship for a bit there. And so it just shows us how important it is to understand what do you mean by that? Uh, what do you mean by that terminology? What do you mean by those words? We have to be careful not to let our internal context and the experiences and the, the even baggage sometimes that we bring into a conversation to keep us from really trying to understand what is the other person saying. That's going to be so true in this series. When I say sexual immorality, you already have certain ideas about what you think that means, but do you know what I think that means? Do I know what you think that means? When I say evil, when I say wicked, when I say that it's not honoring to God, let's not make assumptions right away about what that is. We'll dive into that throughout this series. If I ask, can you hand me the flower? That means something different if I'm a florist or a baker, right? Same, sounds the same but it's two completely different things that I might be asking for, so you have to understand the context. Issues of sexuality and gender are, can be very complex, and all of the ways in which we interact with these issues and with each other and with people who are on different sides of the page than we are with regard to those issues can be very complicated and nuanced, and it's not always simple. In fact, it's never really simple. And I'm not gonna try to make that overly simple or black and white for us. I want us to just take biblical principles and try to apply it to those situations and let God's Holy Spirit guide us through that process. Let me show you some examples of why this can be complex. Are there things that are evil for a Christian to do, but not evil for a non-Christian to do? If the issue is that you're part of Christ's body, well, then maybe if you're not part of Christ's body, then why would that be a problem? That's an interesting question. Is it more evil for you to, let's use some recent examples, bake a cake for a gay wedding if you're opposed to that, or is, that, is it more evil to not do it because you're being unloving to that person? Which principle trumps the other one? Is it immoral for a person to declare that they are of a different gender identity than they used to claim? Is that immoral? Is it immoral for them to get surgery? to reinforce their declaration? Is it immoral for a child to do that? Is it immoral for an adult to encourage a child to do that? You see, these are all different issues that are very complicated, very nuanced. When should we just agree to disagree? Is it different when you're talking about agreeing to disagree with a Christian versus agreeing to disagree with a non-Christian? Does that change anything? Where is the line between us as followers of Jesus sharing truth 
and us being judgmental. Where is that line? How do we know what that line is? Jesus said we're not supposed to judge. So what does that look like? Is, are there, is there ever an appropriate time to judge? How do we follow the words of Jesus? And yet also speak truth at times where it may appear to be judgmental. We're all bringing our own context and understanding of what these things mean. And it's going to take us some time, some weeks to unpack all of these different aspects of sexuality and gender and make sure that we are carefully applying God's word and his principles to how we live and how we believe and how we talk. Really what we're doing today is trying to lay a foundation for the rest of this series, to set the table for, for what will be several weeks of diving into these topics. So in the time I have left, I wanna finish um, laying this foundation by giving you five foundational stones. Five, we'll call them core beliefs that we have that, that need to be taken into account for the rest of everything we say to make any sense. And I know that along the way, uh, there'll probably be lots of questions that people have, and I'm going to try to answer as many of those questions as, as I can, you know, as I research and study God's word through either the messages or through the five questions podcast. So if you have a question, feel free to send it to pastor at efree.org. And whenever I do this, sometimes I get too many for me to answer, so I can't promise that I'll answer every one of them, but, but you know, I'll do my best to, to research and, and get in the Bible and either answer them here or answer them on an upcoming podcast. So feel free to do that at pastoratefree.org. Let me give you the first foundation stone. The first foundation stone is we believe that all people are created by God. This is one of the things that's gonna set us apart from the world and the culture right off the bat. We believe that all people are created by God. Genesis 1 says, God said, let us make man, let us make human beings in our image, different version. Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish and the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful. And multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish and the sea, the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Our starting point is fundamentally different than the starting point of the majority culture. Our culture says that we evolved from lower primates, that evolved from lower life forms, that evolved from single cell organisms, that evolved from primordial soup that was spontaneously was created at some point. I know that's an oversimplification. But, but essentially, the result of it all is we came out of nothing. There was, there was no cause, no higher being, uh, no purpose behind the ultimate creation of humankind. And if that's true, that has a huge implication for morality because it means everything's just random chance. There is no higher standard of morality to appeal to. And so if you wanna do something differently with your body than I think I wanna do with my body, Okay, because there's no higher standard for us to appeal to. There's nothing telling us that that's wrong or that's right. There is no authority on that. Now, as Christians, we start from a different place. We have a different starting point. We see evidence in this world for an intelligent designer. For me personally, one of the biggest things that convinced me of this was looking in, in biology in particular and seeing the irreducible complexity that is there and how you have organisms and, and systems that are mutually dependent on each other to where it would be unbelievably unlikely, um, virtually statistically impossible for these things to have evolved at the same time where without either one of them, the other isn't able to continue existing. And so that was a major factor in convincing me there has to be an intelligent designer because there's this irreducible complexity in the world. Some, someone must have engineered this. It's too fine-tuned for it to not have an intelligent designer. And of course, when we read the Bible, we see that that, creator, that intelligent designer is explained to us. And not only is it explained, but it's explained with the, the purpose behind it. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, reign over all the animals that are on the earth. There's a purpose. There's a design to why we are created. Now, if you don't believe that, I'm not trying to tell you you have to. I'm just saying that is the starting point that we have. And I, I hope that eventually you will believe that because I, I think it will be much better for you. But that's the starting point that we have as our foundation to this whole discussion is that God created us in the first place. He designed us in the first place and there is purpose behind that. He made us with two different sexes, male and female, unique and compatible with each other and fit in very specific ways. And that God is our creator. He cares about us. He cares about how we live. Foundation stone number two, we believe 
that all people bear God's image as relational beings. Notice in verse 26 of Genesis 1 that God says, let us make human beings. And even here at the beginning of the Bible, when they did not have a good understanding of the triune nature of God, the three persons in one, there is still this reference to God in the plural sense. And it's not until Jesus comes along that we start to understand, oh, there's God the Son, there's God the Father, there's God the Holy Spirit, there's these three different persons that are part of the one Godhead. And there's this plural relational aspect to God that is so important and intrinsic to who he is by being made in his image. A part of that is we are relational like he is relational. In fact, you see the importance of that relationship when Jesus loses it briefly on the cross. And he cries out, my God, my God, referring to God the Father, why have you forsaken me? He experienced separation from God there for the first time ever, and it's devastating. God is a relational God, and he made us in his image as relational beings, designed for relational intimacy. You're not just a clump of cells drifting through life with no purpose but to avoid pain and to find pleasure. There's, there's more intention behind the relationships that you crave if they're done in a healthy way. Psalm 139 says, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your work in, workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. So you are crafted by God with design and with purpose in his image, and you will find your greatest joy in life when you live your life according to that design and that purpose. By the way, that also means people who disagree with you were also crafted in the image of God. So remember that when you're talking with them. Foundation stone number three. We believe that all people have value because God values them. People have value because God values them. Jesus said in Matthew 10, what is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. The Bible teaches that people are created by God, that they're created in God's image. They are, they are uh, innately in relational beings and they matter to God. They have value to God. Not because they're so valuable, but because God values them. Pastor John Ortberg tells this great story about his sister, Laura, who was given a doll and she named this doll Pandy. And Pandy looked fine initially, but the problem with having a cherished, beloved um, toy like Pandy, a doll, is that that doll ends up going everywhere. And if you have kids that have a favorite toy and it has to go with them everywhere, it doesn't look that great for very long, does it? And Pandy started to lose her hair and the clothes got torn and raggedy and dirty. But did Laura love her any less? No. Loved her just as much, if not more. And one day, Laura and her mom went to the park. And of course, Pandy had to go with but Laura wanted to go swing on the swings, so she put Pandy down on a bench, and she went to swing on the swings. When she came back, she found to her horror that some man had picked Pandy up and was walking away with her, and Laura was incensed. She pursued the man. That's my doll. Give it back, and he turned around and said, this old thing? I was just going to throw it in the trash. It looks abandoned. It's dirty. It's ugly. You really want this? She said, yes, I want my doll. I want Pandy. He said, it's so ugly. Why would you want this thing? And he threw it in the ground. And Laura ran over to Pandy, picked Pandy up and said, don't listen to him. She said, you're beautiful to me. I love you. You're real to me. It's a little picture of how God values us. See, Laura didn't value Pandy because Pandy looked great. And I'm not trying to make any major statements here, but you know, I'm just look at us. We're a funky group of people, Okay. But God still loves us anyway. We're broken, we're messed up. Some of us are losing our hair, okay? I get it, it's starting to happen here too. And yet, as messed up as we can be, God still loves us and values us, not because we're super valuable, but because he chooses to value us and love us. And that goes for the person you disagree with. That goes for the person who's making lifestyle choices that you do not approve of, or you don't think God's word in the Bible approve of. That goes for people who might be, when it comes to certain issues like politics or gender or sexuality, might be your mortal enemies. And yet, God created them, 
They're made in his image, and he values them. Not because they're super valuable, we can all agree on that, because God chooses to value them and love them. That's foundation stone number three. Foundation stone four. We believe that all people are under the authority of Jesus and will find true happiness only when obeying him. In Matthew 28, Jesus is talking with his disciples after he's died and risen again, and he says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. A simple statement that is packed with meaning. And you can go throughout the New Testament to see other examples of this, where God has the authority and he designates this authority to God the Son and Jesus. And says, you have all the authority in heaven and on earth. It's in Matthew 28. It's in Matthew 11, John 3, John 17, Ephesians 1, 1 Peter 3. And we could go on. Jesus has all the authority. Why is that significant? Because Jesus is the ultimate authority over every person, over every creature, over every, every being in heaven. Whether they like it or realize it or not. Ultimately, they will be measured against the authority of Jesus Christ. And what he says. And what he taught us disciples, in particular his apostles, to pass down through the centuries to us today. And so people may not like it, but they are under authority. Now the culture says, do not impress your authority on me. The culture says, we don't like moral authority. We don't want any kind of moral authority given to us. And yet they do like moral authority. They just want a different kind. They don't want God's moral authority. They don't want the authority of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus. They want a crowdsourced authority to govern their morals. And we, we know that because no longer is there any cry for tolerance. The cry is for endorsement. The cry is for affirmation. And so now there is a new moral authority that you need to bend the knee to. The whim of the culture, the will of the culture is what you are supposed to bow to or you will pay the consequences for it. See, everybody wants authority. They just don't want authority crimps the way they like to live right now, whatever that happens to be. I was once playing in a basketball game, high school, and uh, there was an outrageous number of bad calls against our team, all from one referee, and it did not make any sense. I mean, we could be standing from here to over there, the person we were supposedly fouling against, and yet would have a foul called against us. It made no sense at all. And I don't remember if we won or lost that game. But I do remember the moment in the locker room when we discovered that the referee was the uncle of one of the opposing team's players and how that made us feel. We wanted authority. We wanted referees. We wanted referees to make good calls, calls that we agreed with. We did not want a referee who was biased and unfair. If any of you have kids that play sports, you do not like it when the referee or the umpire is the parent of one of the opposing team's players. That's not going to work out very well for you. But we want that authority in our life. Now, uh, maybe you're not that into sports or uh, you don't have kids that play sports, but probably most of you drive a car. How many of you drive a car, have driven a car in your life? Okay. No, seriously, raise your hand if you've driven a car in your life. Okay, go ahead. I just want to loosen up, lubricate those joints. Okay. How many of you, if you're being honest with me, be, be fair to yourself here, would say, you know, I'm an above average driver. If you're an above average driver, just raise your hand, okay? Spouses are being real careful here. Because I see some of you that did the flinch, and they're like, mm, never mind. Now, statistically, we know that if the majority of you raise your hand as an above average driver, that cannot possibly be true. And yet, a study done by AAA showed that eight out of 10 men rate themselves as an above average driver. That cannot be true. And yet, I absolutely think I'm an above average driver. In fact, if anyone is so slow that I'm passing them, they're driving way too slow. And if they're fast and passing me, they're reckless. I picked just the right speed limit. And anyone who differs, thank you, I appreciate that. Anyone who differs is just a bad driver, right? That's, that's what we think. I did a lot of driving the last couple of months all over the country. And you know what? When there were those moments where I saw someone doing something reckless on the road or making a bad choice, you know what I thought in my head? Man, I hope there's a police officer around. <laughs> I would just love to see them pulled over a mile up the road. That'd be amazing. But you know what? There were moments when I made bad choices too on the road. Jackson, cover your ears. <laughs> and you know what I thought when I made those bad choices or right afterward? 
Man, I hope there wasn't a police officer watching. We all want authority involved in our lives. We just want it involved in certain ways. And the reality is the culture trades the authority of God's word for the authority of the cultural and crowdsourced morality that is ultimately going to lead to problems and destruction and challenges in their lives. Let me give you another illustration of this. I wanna show you a sign, a picture of a sign. This is a kind of sign that you might see in certain parts of the world. Go ahead and show that up there. And what would you do if you saw this sign? You're, you're hiking through the mountains and you come across this sign. You don't exactly know what it means, but it probably means something ominous, right? You can just tell by looking at it. There's, there's something, there's a problem there. Would you ignore it? Would you climb on through? Would you stop? What if you saw other people approaching this sign? Would you say anything? Would you just say, well, that's none of my business. I'm not gonna do anything. What would you do? This, is, this sign is kind of like the boundaries we see in God's word. Sometimes they don't actually make sense to us completely, or we don't know all the reasons for why they're there. They may not be clear. It's almost like they're written in a different language. What does that actually mean? And yet there's a, there's a sign there that, that's a warning, and maybe it's there for a reason. Now, you can say, I don't believe that anyone actually put up the sign, or I don't believe that it means anything, or I believe the sign is outdated, or, or it's old-fashioned, it has no relevance to, to today, but there's a sign there, and, and what are you, you going to choose to do with it? In 2004, there was a group of four hikers who were hiking and came across a sign just like that one, and they decided to ignore it. And so they climbed over the fence and they kept on walking. One of them died almost instantly, and three others were severely injured and had to be airlifted out because they had walked into an active minefield. Now, I've been there. I, I've, I've seen those signs personally. It's in the Golan Heights in northern Israel. And I know that if I see that sign, I'm turning the other direction. There's no way I'm going to cross that because I know there is a danger ahead that, that I believe that sign is there for a reason. It's a warning sign. If I see someone else approach that sign, what am I going to do? Not tell them anything? Just say, well, you do you. I'm not going to go over there. But if you want to go over there, that's fine. I want to get, offer this up as an analogy because I think it's an important way to understand the rest of this series and what it's going to be. We're gonna be talking about some warning signs in God's word. And we're not doing that because our job is to judge people. Jesus said it's not. My job is not to judge people and what they do. I mean, I'm, I'm supposed to assess what they're doing, but I'm not the judge. God's the judge. I'm the messenger. And throughout this series, again and again, what you're gonna find is me in this case, and hopefully just accurately communicating God's word, though I'm a fallible human, saying there's a sign here. There's a sign here in God's word. And I'm not trying to do that from a perspective of I am your moral authority telling you not to do something. I'm trying to do that as someone who has walked up there, didn't put the sign there, and is just saying, hey, did you see the sign? There's a warning up ahead. I think that's the mindset we as, as followers of Jesus need to have when it comes to a lot of these cultural issues. When we see, we see danger ahead, we're not bringing it up because we want other people to live lives like we do. We're not bringing it up because we want to, to stop their fun. We're not bringing it up because we're just very judgmental, critical people. And I hope that comes across in how we communicate to people that we're bringing up because we really believe this is better for you because God created you and you're made in his image and he values you and he loves you and he's designed you this life to work a certain way. And as we saw in 1 Corinthians 6, if you don't live life a certain way according to God's design for you, even when it comes to sexuality, there are consequences. And so we want to point out the sign. And, and whether or not you listen is up to you. But we have to point out the sign. Foundation stone number five is that God's boundaries for sex and gender are designed to protect us and give us the most fulfilling life that glorifies him and honors his design for us. They're not there to spoil our fun. They're not there to limit us. You see, when we go against the design of our creator, there are natural consequences and there are divine consequences. There are natural consequences for just operating outside of his design, how he made us, the purpose that he gave us. Again, with all the, the foundation that I mentioned earlier. And then there are divine consequences because Jesus is an authority over our life and he has given us certain boundaries and parameters to stay within. And so there are natural consequences to rejecting God's design and there are divine consequences to rejecting Jesus' authority. And I'm over here looking at the sign and going, there's a sign. And I want to explain what it means. And maybe it doesn't make sense to you, but I have to let you know why it's there and what danger lies ahead. And so as we go throughout this series, I hope that everyone will listen with that spirit 
in mind. That idea of we are here to be messengers of what is in God's word. We are here to study it and learn from it and understand it as best as we can. And sometimes it's not gonna make sense to us. And sometimes we're gonna see something in God's word and go, well, I'm not sure if I totally agree with that. But if it's a warning sign in God's word, we need to take it seriously. And we need to consider seriously how we communicate with other people. Not because we're trying to impose our moral way on someone else, but because we wanna point to the sign and let them know for their benefit, for their good, because that foundational belief that when you live according to God's design for your life, it's gonna lead to the most fulfilling, joy-filled life that God wants you to have without the consequences, without the regrets. Let me ask you to do one more thing as I wrap up today. And that is, would you be praying for us throughout this series? You know, when we dive into issues that are cultural hot button issues, it always stirs up a little bit of controversy and even some spiritual warfare. And so I ask if you would be praying for me and be praying for our church and be praying for our conversations with each other, that God would help us all to grow in maturity and in love for all the people that he created in his image, he values, and he has authority over. Let's show that love to them. Would you all bow your heads in prayer with me? Jesus, we know that you are in authority over every one of us. We don't always live like it. We don't always appreciate it. And God, sometimes I think the world looks at the church and thinks it's just a bunch of rules with no reason behind them. And yet when we really study your word, we see that not only are there reasons, there are, there are dangers if we do not follow, if we do not obey. And, and there are wonderful things that happen when we do, when we stay inside your design for us. Now, God, we haven't gotten into yet what your word says about that design very much. But I pray that you would help us all to, be, to, be, to have softened hearts, ready to hear your word, God. I pray that you would work through this series to, to guide us into truth, that your spirit would, would direct our thoughts. And even though we will find, I'm sure, disagreements along the way, that we would be united around the things that matter most and that you would be glorified and honored by how we represent you in this world, by the choices that we make. Maybe there's some toes that are gonna be stepped on in this series. Uh, maybe there's some difficult conversations that are gonna happen. Maybe there are some really challenging things that we need to work through, but we trust you to guide us through all of them, Lord, as our cornerstone in life. We pray this in Jesus' name.